Thank you. Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you again this morning, and just want to say thank you for joining with us and taking some time out of your weekend to be here and worship with us today. So if you've been around for the last couple weeks, you know we're in week three of this series we're, call, we're calling Losing Our Religion, and it's in the midst of this series that we're wrestling with what it means to have a relationship, to not, to not just do all the right things, but to rest and to realize who Jesus says we are and the work that he's done. And so my prayer is that this series has been as challenging for you as it has been for me because it's been one of those that kind of steps on our toes a little bit. And if your toes are stepped on, I feel you mine have been stepped on as well. Um, and if you're craving more of this, just a reminder, we do have life groups that meet all throughout, and a lot of those life groups are actually using sermon discussion guides to talk about the truths and the things that we are learning here on Sunday morning. So if you're not in one of those, we'd love to have you get connected to one of those. Before we begin this morning, would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would calm our hearts. Calm our minds. We all walk in here today with lots of things to do. As Paul talked about last week, a lot of us in this room probably have checklists of things we need to do this afternoon. But God, for the next 30, 35 minutes, I just ask that you would calm our hearts and minds so that we could be present in this place, so we could hear what your word has to say to us and how it can change our lives. God, we ask and pray that you would be at work in us forming us to be more like you and more like your son in this time. God, we give this time to you and ask that you speak. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about ridiculous things throughout the course of my week. So if you ever want to know what's going on in Jason's brain, you really don't. It's a little frightening up there. But some of the things I think about are like, what would be things that are impossible? And so this week, I actually did a Google search in preparation for the sermon and found a list of nine nearly impossible things for you to do. Uh, some of you, I know you well enough to know that you're going to try some of these as I list them for you as we sit here. And so that will be my humor part of the, portion of the sermon is watching you try to see if you can do these things. So some of these I know are possible, but not for the majority of people. You can touch your nose with your tongue. Anybody in here able to touch their nose with their tongue? All right, we've got one hand or at least one person brave enough to, to do that. To wiggle your ears. I cannot wiggle my ears. I don't know if that's possible or not. Uh, I know that Dwayne The Rock Johnson can raise one eyebrow, but I don't know too many other people who can just raise one significantly higher than the other. Uh, tickle yourself. Seems weird. Never tried it, but apparently it's impossible to be able to tickle yourself. Put your fist in your mouth. Any takers? Anybody going to try? All right, just curious. Write the number six while moving your foot clockwise. 
It is impossible to write the number six while moving your foot clockwise. It is impossible to eat a spoonful of straight cinnamon. Now, I'm going to tell you, I have seen this one tested. I had an intern when I was early in youth ministry, and we were at a meeting in this church's boardroom, and he swore that he could eat a spoonful of cinnamon. And I was like, dude, I've seen videos on, on social media. You don't want to try this. And he was bound and determined to do it. And he put that cinnamon in his mouth and soon he began to cough and cinnamon was shooting out of every opening in his head. It was just coming everywhere. We left him in that boardroom to clean it up as we moved to a different place. I was like, I warned you. To lick your elbow, again, weird, why would you lick your elbow? Or to sneeze with your eyes open. I'm just afraid of that. Like, what, where would your eyeballs go if you sneezed? But on a more serious note, if we were to sit down and have coffee, and I ask you, what in your life would you love to change, but believe that it's impossible for that to happen? What would you say? Are you in a spot where your marriage feels impossible to save? Maybe struggling with the idea that it seems impossible for your kids or grandkids to ever hear the truth that Jesus loves them. Is there sin in your life that you're like, you know, I'm just stuck. It is impossible. There's no way I'm ever going to get free of this. Maybe it's just something about you that you would love to change but you feel like there's no way this will ever happen. See, impossibility can be funny when we talk about things like eating cinnamon and licking our elbows, but when it hits the deepest parts of our lives, the concept of impossibility is no longer funny. But what if? What if the truth of the gospel is that it is the story of God meeting us in our impossibility and bringing new life? What if the faith that we believe is the story of God stepping into that place where you feel like there's no hope and anything to change that would be impossible and God steps in and brings new life and brings hope and brings joy to those places? I think that's the truth of Galatians chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible or your phone, go ahead and pull it out. You can follow along there. If not, the words will be on the screen. I always remember this General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you need to look that up in your Bible, that's how you can find it. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul's still speaking to the people there, and he says, Oh, you foolish Galatians! He's so kind in his letters, isn't he? Who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? 
I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you have believed the message you heard about Christ. In the same way Abraham believed God and God counted, it, counted him as righteous because of his faith, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to a time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed the good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Now, Paul, if you remember, you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we know Paul is talking to a group of Christians in what is called modern-day Turkey, who have a Jewish background. Their faith originally was Jews. They were followers of God, children of Abraham. They believed these things about the law that God had given them. But the whole way through this book, Paul is arguing that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, that it's not about obeying the law. It's about belief in Jesus. And today, as we enter chapter 3, Paul makes this masterful move. And it's something that we should learn as a church. Paul takes the gospel and he puts it in context for the Galatians, right? So let me explain what I mean by that. He takes the truth of who Jesus is and he says to the, these Israelites who would say that Abraham is the greatest, right? Nobody was greater than Abraham. He's the guy God called, founded their religion, worked through. And Paul's like, let me take you back to Abraham. So instead of starting with Jesus, instead of saying, you have to believe Jesus, Paul takes them to what they know and uses that to introduce Jesus into the conversation. Now, let me rabbit trail for just a minute. This is all free of charge. You didn't pay for any of this. It's, it's worth it, but it's not in the price of admission. All right. Paul does this all the time in the New Testament, and it's super important. Paul goes to, to Athens in a different, in Acts, and he walks all through the city of Athens. And as he walks through this city, he says, he sees that they're religious people. He sees that they like to worship gods. And so instead of walking into Athens and being like, hey, Jesus, he's better than all your other gods. You should ditch all your other gods and follow Jesus. Paul spends time getting to know the culture there. And as he gets to know that culture, he finds an idol to an unknown God. And so instead of starting with trying to make Jesus better than all the gods they know, Paul says to them, let me tell you about the God you don't know. I noticed you had this idol to this God that you don't know. Let me tell you who that is. And let me tell you how I believe that he is far superior than all the gods you do know. What would our efforts to share the gospel of Jesus look like if we begin to meet people where they are in our culture? So this is a little bit of a dated analogy or example of what that would look like. And some of you are like, could we get one less pastor to talk about Harry Potter? Because we're really tired of hearing about it, right? But the story of Harry Potter, whatever you think about whether kids should read it or not, we won't go there. The story of Harry Potter is about a force of evil, he who must not be named, right, for our, those fans in here, who is going to kill Harry. But he can't. 
And what saves Harry? The love of his mom who would give up her life to save his. Sound familiar? It's J.K. Rollins is a masterful storyteller, but she's not the creator of the original story. Jesus came to spare us from the evil one who would destroy our lives, but his love saves us. Right? That's the gospel. How would we be more, could we be more effective if we would begin meeting people in cultural stories? Marvel's full of them as well if you're a Marvel fan. There's all kinds of stories through our culture where we can meet people where they're at and introduce Jesus instead of forcing Jesus to fit where we want them to be. All right, rabbit trail over. That was free. Come back next week. There'll be more free content. Let's take a look at our text again. So Paul makes this move now to talk about Abraham, Galatians 3, 6. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Abraham was not credited righteousness because he obeyed. He was credited righteousness because he believed. You see, Abraham's story is a story where order matters. The order of events matters in Abraham's story, and because it matters in Abraham's story, it matters in our story. You see, Abraham was about just going about his day. He was living life, doing whatever he needed to do, and God shows up. And God calls Abraham to something. God acts on behalf of Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I need you to leave this land of comfort. I need you to go over here. And when I bless you, I'm going to bless all the other nations through you. God acts. Abraham believes. Abraham says, God, if that's what you say you're going to do, then I will go. He trusts what God said. And because he trusts what God said, Abraham leaves his homeland now, you need to understand this. We look at this and we're like, oh, that's not a big deal. We move all the time, right? I moved from West Virginia to Indiana to St. Louis, back to Indiana to Minneapolis. Now I'm here in Illinois. Moving's not a big deal, Jason. People move all the time. It was a big deal then. Abraham is leaving everything. His family, his money, his wealth, everything but his nephew Lot and his wife are right there. And he walks out into a desert he essentially commits suicide in that time because he believes what God said and he wants to obey what God has asked him to do. But Abraham didn't initiate the action. God does. Paul says it's the same for you, Galatians, and for us today. God acted by sending Jesus to die on the cross. God stepped out of heaven before we could do anything, sent his son to die on a cross to rise again. Then for the Galatians, they believed or we believed. And it's out of the belief that comes obedience. God acts, we believe, then we obey. Abraham believed in God. He didn't just believe God. It's easy to say that God exists, right? James says, 
Even the demons believe that and shudder, but do we actually allow our belief to lead to obedience? Abraham believed that God would meet him in his own impossibility and bring new life. And Abraham believed this maybe more than anybody else and maybe in some really extravagant ways. Picture yourself, 100 years old. I don't want to know what I'm going to look like at 100 years old. There's a part of me that's like, maybe I don't want to make it to 100 years old, right? Abraham is 100 years old. His wife is 97, and God says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. A TikTok God, that womb is dead. You better start moving. 97 years, and there's been no life in Sarah's womb. There's been no kids. There's been nothing. And God says, in your place of impossibility, I will bring new life. And Isaac is born. And we see this nation that God promised would be formed. That's what God does. That's the God we worship. For us who sit here today, that's the message of the gospel. God will walk into these places that you feel like are dead and hopeless. And he brings life. I am a horrible artist, but let's see if maybe we can draw to illustrate this. I cheated and drew it ahead of time. (laughs) Takes less pressure. All right. So what you see is a graph. We've got time coming across here and holiness. Holiness is just a churchy word for perfection, right? For how we're trying to grow to be more like Jesus. The truth is, For each of us, this first line that comes across flat here, that's going to be different amounts of time. But imagine that's your life prior to meeting Jesus. But at this point, you meet Jesus. You say, God, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you acted the way you said you would act. And we immediately come up here. Stick figures that are disconnected from their body. He's leaning. I don't know what he's doing. And because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, all God sees in us is perfect holiness. The minute we believe, God says we're perfect. We're holy. We can't be any better than we already are. We can't be any more loved than we already are because God sees us through his son. Now we live this experience, right? If we're honest as Christians, we still mess up, right? So we grow a little bit and then we plateau and then maybe we go on a camp or retreat and we have some growth and then we plateau and then we fall back down because we sin again and we keep messing up, right? So Martin Luther said we are simultaneously saint, 100% perfect and holy, and sinner. People who live lives that go up and down and up and down. Now, I don't know about you, but I used to believe that I would live this life and I'd fill up another whiteboard full of sin. And at some point, that sin became so much and we confess and we say, God, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? I'm sorry I got angry. I'm sorry I got angry at that person. You know how they, do, they, do, they just have triggers that get to me, God. And so then God forgives us. And he wipes that, he takes his like God-sized eraser and he wipes that clean. 
That guilt that we feel, that pressure that we feel to have to continue to come back and say, I'm sorry, that's us trying to earn it, right? God, I don't want to be angry anymore. I don't want to lose my mind. I don't want to be, I don't know why traffic, I don't know why people in traffic can't drive, God, right? But we get angry and we go, oh, I guess I'm just right back down here. That's not the gospel. The gospel is actually, God doesn't just see us through Christ. Well, that's weird. I put the lid on backwards. All he sees is Christ. When you believe in God's eyes, each and every one of us, the truth of the gospel is you are restored. You are perfect. You are made whole in God's eyes. That's the impossibility. You can't be any more loved. It doesn't matter what you do tomorrow when you walk out of this place. It doesn't matter what you do on your way home. God loves you. Look at Galatians 3, 10 through 13. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For scripture says, cursed is anyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For scripture says, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. We don't have to try. We don't have to work to earn this. We have Jesus who took the curse who took the consequences, all we have to do is believe he is who he says he is. I think this is why Paul is so upset with the Galatians because they're living as though they can actually work hard enough to make themselves better. They believe they are saved by the truth of the gospel, that they get Jesus, that they get a relationship with God, but then we have to obey in order to attain, in order to grow so that I avoid the dips. They're living like Jesus plus my willful obedience to the law equals everything. All right, this is a test to see who's been around for three, actually, to see who's been awake for the last three weeks. That's not the formula. The formula is Jesus plus equals everything. Congratulations, you guys get an A. Dick Kaufman, who was a pastor on Tim Keller's staff, said this, Christians we are saved by the gospel, but then we grow by applying biblical truths to every area of our lives. He says, no, we're not just saved by the gospel. We grow by applying the gospel to every area of our life. What does that look like? It looks like when I hit this valley, every time I hit this valley, I remember Jesus died for me. Jesus died so that I could be made whole. I'm forgiven and I'm free. And when I hit this valley, I remember Jesus died for this. I remember Jesus died for this. When I'm on this mountaintop, I remember 
I didn't get there by my own works. I didn't get there by memorizing scripture. I didn't get there by praying a little bit more. I got there because God is at work in my life. The truth is, church, the more we begin to apply the gospel to our lives, the more stuff we'll see. We'll be like, oh, wow, I didn't even know that was a problem. We'll never get there by working harder. We'll never get there, as Paul said last week, with our checklists. We'll get there when we allow the truth of the gospel to enter every part of our lives. I don't know about you. You've probably, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but on a Thursday or Friday night, if there's nothing going on, what I want to do is have pizza. And I want to sit on my comfy couch and I want to watch a movie. That is tranquility on a Friday night. My family can be around. We're going to enjoy the night. Nothing will ruin that tranquility faster than the spinning circle of death from Netflix or Amazon Prime. You know what it is. You know. Netflix taunts you 3%, 10%, 24%. Mine gets right to 97% and just circles. And at that point, 99% of my head is candy apple red because I have now lost it. And I am angry. My boys would be like, we don't like to be around dad when he's like that. Corey normally says, calm down, it doesn't help. <laughs> but then on Saturday morning, what do we do? We wake up. We say, God, I'm so sorry I lost my cool. It's just technology. It was just a movie. I'm going to try harder. When we take the gospel and we apply it to these pits in our lives, when we lose it at Netflix, it's not even a real thing. We begin to look at that and what we say is, God, I'm sorry. Would you show me what is in my life that I've put in place of you? Instead of you being the one who reminds me I'm complete, reminds me I'm loved, reminds me I'm whole. What have I put up there? What have I put in place of you in my life that's led me to this place? You see, there's a difference. It's not about me trying not to be angry. It's about me recognizing that for me, it's probably working all the time to make sure none of you know that I'm not really qualified to do this job. It's trying to find acceptance. It's trying to find a place where I feel like it's okay to not be okay. Instead of trusting that Jesus says I'm okay. So then some of you are like, Jason, what's the purpose of the law then? If we have to deal with all this, if it's not really about obeying anything, it's about recognizing what I put in my life that's not Jesus, why did God even give us the law? Paul answers that question. 3.16, why, or 3.19, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses 
who was the mediator between God and the people. John Stott, a theologian, explains that verse this way. After God gave the promise to Abraham, when he called Abraham and said, You're going to be my, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. He had, the law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what's really underneath. Sinful, rebellious, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. You see, we need the law to remind us we can't do this on our own. Because the truth is, we think we're pretty good, right? We compare ourselves to each other. We look at our neighbor and we go, better than he is. Look at the neighbor across the street and we go, I think I've got it more together than they do. Or we look at culture and we go, we're living the American dream. My 401k looks good. My kids are doing well in sports. They have straight A's. Life's great. And then all of a sudden we look at the law and we go, oh, but I lied. Right? Let's just pick the easy one. We all do it. Or I did this, and it's in that face that we realize we have to have a Savior. We'll never get here on our own. Paul says not only was it given to show you sin, it was given as a guardian. Galatians 3, 23 and 25. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under the law, guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Paul says the law is essentially like your parent. It's just making sure we don't go too far off the rails, right? The law is like... Make, keeping the Israelites in check. They can't ever keep it. They can't ever fully obey it. That's why they had a sacrificial system. But at least they have something that keeps them from like losing their minds and going crazy. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God meets us in our impossibility and brings new life. And our response to that is gratitude. Our response to that is not obedience. Our response to that is gratitude. Thankfulness that when we couldn't do anything to change our situation, God acted and brought us to here, a place we'd never, ever get on our own. The gospel believed in our lives plus gratitude will equal obedience but the gospel plus obedience doesn't equal gratitude. It equals slavery. And Paul says, you've, God sent us to be set free. When I believe the gospel and I'm grateful, I can love God freely. I can love my neighbor. It's out of gratitude for what Jesus has done in my life, for the way he's changed me, that I can love my kids, that I can love my spouse that I can put those things away above getting my preference and everything I want because I remember that God has stepped in and loved me. A life of gratitude puts Jesus first, our neighbor second, and me third. 
but it's the gospel that leads us to gratitude. The gospel is the story of God meeting us in our impossibility and bringing new life. So this morning as we gather, what's your impossibility? What feels impossible to you? If you were back at that table and we were having coffee, what would you say? Maybe for some of us here, we feel like it's impossible that God could actually love us. You might even look at me and say, Jason, if you knew what I'd done, you'd know God couldn't love me. That's a lie. God did love you. God does love you. And if you've never believed that, in just a minute, I'm going to give you a chance to respond. But maybe for some of us who have put our faith there, we're like, but God could never forgive me. Jason, I've asked for forgiveness a thousand times. He's got to be out of patience. If someone I love did the things I've done back to him, I'd be out of patience with them. God's standing with arms wide open. Stop trying to work. Start applying the gospel. Put me first. See what happens. Maybe you're in one of these valleys and you don't know how to get out. What's your impossibility? The God we worship is the God who meets us in that place. The God who brought life to a hundred-year-old womb and bringing forth a nation. It's the God of impossibility who stepped out of heaven and did the impossible. God died. Impossibility number one. And then he came back to life. Impossibility number two. So that you and I could know we're loved. He's the God of the impossible. He's the God who did the impossible in Saul's life when he renamed this guy who was capturing Christians and killing them, Paul, and used him to plant churches all throughout the world and to write over half the New Testament. That's the God who works in our impossibility. That's the God who met me in my impossibility. I grew up an angry teenager in a broken house who wanted nothing to do with the church. God stepped into that. God stepped into my frustration with my parents, my frustration with church multiple times. I spent 10 years in ministry and then walked away from this place, promising to never, ever come back. <clears throat> Almost losing my marriage in the process. But God stepped into that impossibility. And he said, I'm not done with you yet. I'm going to bring a new life here. And so I can tell you the God we worship is a God who speaks into your places of impossibility. 
And he wants to bring life into your life. If we'll let him. I don't know your impossibility today, but God does. And he's ready to act if we'll let him. Will you pray with me? For those of you who are here this morning and you think, I, I don't know who this God is, but if you tell me he loves me, I want to follow him. I'm going to invite you to repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, for far too long, I've lived life my own way. I know that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I need you to be my source of help. I need you to step into my impossibility and breathe life. I believe you are who you say you are. I want to turn from my sins and trust in you. God, thank you for taking my sin and paying what I couldn't pay. Thank you for being my Savior. For the rest of us in the room, God, we come all different places in our faith walk. All different places with you. God, each of us, though, carrying pain or hurt or stress or struggle. God, we need you to be who you are. God, we need to see you act. Give us faith to believe. And God, may we live lives of gratitude and obedience to your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the truth of the gospel and the way that it changes our lives. Thank you, Father, for loving us when we were unlovable. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you need someone to pray with you, there'll be people on the sides of the room. They would love to pray with you. They would love to be the source of hope for you in the midst of of your impossibility. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time, they'd love to talk to you about that as we sing this last song. Let's worship.